total costs for heart failure are expected to reach $69.8 billion by 2030, representing a 127% cost increase from 2012. Hospitalization comprises 80% of the cost of heart failure care, all other factors aside and assuming current hospitalization practices continue. Hello and welcome to CV Deep Dive. In this podcast series, we discuss various aspects of cardiovascular disease management and feature key insights from leading medical experts. I'm your host, Dennis Steele. In this episode, we'll be examining the interplay between optimizing heart failure management and delivering quality care. I'm joined in this studio by Ava Parker, who spoke with Dr. Nihar Desai about recent changes in the healthcare landscape. Dr. Desai is an associate professor of medicine and an investigator in the Center for Outcomes Research and Evaluation at Yale School of Medicine. Hi, Ava. Hello, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here to discuss this important topic. In an effort to improve care, optimize patient outcomes, and reduce cost, healthcare is transitioning from a volume-based care model to a value-based care model. As Dr. Desai suggests, this represents a transformative change in the way care is delivered. It forces us to really reimagine and rethink what the care should look like. In today's episode, we will look more closely at what value-based care means, discuss a few specific examples of value-based care models, and describe how practitioners can best deliver heart failure care in the context of these models. But before we take a deep dive into our quality of care discussion, I think it's important that we first understand the current and projected impact of heart failure on the healthcare system. Much of this impact derives from hospitalizations. Here's Dr. Desai. Heart failure is one of the leading causes of hospitalization in the United States and, and even worldwide, and uh, a leading cause of both morbidity and mortality. We also have some gaining appreciation for the fact that it exacts a significant toll in terms of healthcare spending and resource utilization. There have been variable estimates, but um, you know, some studies have suggested that in 2030, the expenditures related to heart failure will exceed uh, $70 billion. How does hospitalization for heart failure contribute to healthcare costs? The clinical course of heart failure is typically punctuated by multiple episodes of hospitalization. In one study, more than 80% of patients with heart failure experienced at least one hospitalization over a median follow-up of five years. The cost of hospitalization for heart failure is exceedingly high and expected to increase. In two separate studies, the mean cost per heart failure hospitalization was estimated at $14,000 for individuals greater than or equal to 65 years old, with Medicare covering $13,000 of the total expense, and $17,000 for individuals less than or equal to 64 years old. To put these figures into perspective, the cost of inpatient stays for heart failure contributed to about 62% of the total direct costs of heart failure in 2012. Wow, those are substantial costs. They are. What's worse is that a history of heart failure hospitalization increases the risk of rehospitalization. 
Within 30 days of discharge, about 20% of patients are readmitted to the hospital, making heart failure the number one cause of 30-day readmission among Medicare beneficiaries in the U.S. So the burden of heart failure is very high and increasing over time. What potential factors are driving the impact of heart failure on the healthcare system? Dr. Desai noted several contributing factors. One is the increasing prevalence of heart failure. We have estimates that you know, over 8 million people in the United States will have um, heart failure um, just in a couple of years from now. This increasing prevalence is in turn driven by a number of factors. We have a number of risk factors you know, for heart failure, including hypertension and diabetes um, and coronary artery disease and atherosclerosis. Um, those continue to increase in terms of prevalence. We then see heart failure as the downstream clinical manifestation of many of those um, problems. Increased prevalence of risk factors is compounded by the aging of the population. The kinds of therapies and, and device technologies that we have for patients with coronary artery disease um, or diabetes or hypertension um, have, have substantially improved uh, over the number of years and decades. And, and so that enables patients to actually live um, significantly longer with these chronic medical conditions. And that also is then a contributor to the development of, uh, of congestive heart failure. So the prevalence of heart failure continues to rise because of an aging population with multiple risk factors. And this in turn increases the burden on the healthcare system? That's correct, Dennis. And since the impact of heart failure hospitalization on the healthcare system is considerable, it's understandable that heart failure is a focus of quality improvements and value-based care. So what is value-based care? Well, let me start with a bit of background. Historically, the healthcare system has followed a volume-based care model, which focuses on the quantity of services delivered. Providers are rewarded based on the amount or number of services they deliver. An alternative name for this type of care delivery model is fee-for-service. More recently, healthcare is transitioning to a value-based care model that focuses on patient outcomes. Health systems are rewarded based on health outcomes and quality of care. Here's Dr. Desai describing this shift. One of the, the, the arcs of change um, that, that we are you know, sort of traveling on right now is, is moving away from a almost purely volume-based um, model of, of healthcare, where um, the, the, the more you do, the more you are um, compensated to a value-based model of care where the financial um, reimbursement is tied to the quality of care that's delivered, to the outcomes that are achieved, and to the efficiency of the care that's provided. I think ultimately it's, it's moving away from a very transactional kind of relationship um, that a patient has with, you know, with the healthcare system to a much more transformative you know, relationship where we really you know, are thinking in a different kind of way about health care and the health of that individual. Dr. Desai explained that value-based care aims to benefit each of the key stakeholders in healthcare. First and foremost, that's the patients, so that the quality of care 
is substantially better, that we reduce variation, that we address disparities uh, in care that have persisted for, for far too long. I think to make the experience for providers better, to give them some clarity, to align incentives in a way that may have been potentially misaligned, you know, in, in prior types of uh, arrangements. And, and I think then when all of those things happen and come together, I think the benefits for society and the healthcare system at large are enormous. I think that we will see uh, much more efficient care, uh, higher value, higher quality, better outcomes, better experience for patients, their families, and also for, for providers. How does heart failure factor into quality of care initiatives? That's a great question, and I discussed this with Dr. Desai. Heart failure is a very important example of the kind of disease state that you know, really requires that kind of quality and coordinated care approach um, to really get better outcomes for patients, but also potentially have um, reductions in, in healthcare costs and expenditures overall. We have the benefit of so much evidence um, to guide our clinical practice, um, particularly with regard to reduced ejection fraction heart failure, but also with preserved ejection fraction heart failure as well. Um, I think we have really benefited from leveraging that evidence and converting that into a series of clinical practice guidelines and performance measures that can then be used to really drive um, quality improvement um, efforts. So one can think of some of the seminal examples of that being you know, use of guideline-directed medical therapy and whether that's you know, use of beta blockers for patients with reduced um, uh, ejection fraction heart failure or use of you know, RAS inhibition or, or others. Um, we have really been guided by, by, that, by those types of programs um, to really be cornerstones to improving our management of patients with heart failure. And so I would say, you know, quality improvement has really been one of, um, you know, one of the, the, the key areas of focus for, for, for heart failure care. It's not really a surprise, just given, you know, kind of the burden of the disease, the evidence that we have, and I think the real need for us to um, deliver best care to our patients. I see. That makes a lot of sense. How is value-based care implemented? In order to really understand its implementation, let's take a closer look at some of the reimbursement models that are related to heart failure. Here's Dr. Desai. The one that's probably most well-known is the Hospital Readmission Reduction Program um, that financially penalizes hospitals for too many or excess numbers of readmissions. And that program sits in inception in um, 2012 actually includes 30-day readmissions following a heart failure hospitalization as one of the key quality metrics um, that the program assesses hospitals on. As Dr. Desai noted, the Hospital Readmission Reduction Program, or HRRP, focuses on 30-day readmission as its performance measure. The higher the number of readmissions, the lower the payment received by hospitals. Given that heart failure is also associated with high mortality, another program, the Hospital Value-Based Purchasing Program, also known as the HVBP, measures 30-day post-discharge mortality as a performance measure. The Hospital Value-Based Purchasing Program 
is a, is a financial payment incentive program system that looks more holistically at the quality of care that hospitals are delivering. So it kind of grades hospitals along four domains, along uh, clinical outcomes, patient safety, the cost or efficiency of care, and the patient and caregiver experience. And here again, no surprise that in the clinical outcomes domain, that the 30-day mortality for heart failure is one of the key uh, elements and, and, and metrics that is used in that, in that program. Focusing on readmission and mortality outcomes is important because, as Dr. Desai explains, this will benefit the ultimate recipients of care. I think what really matters to patients and their caregivers is outcomes, is, you know, what is the end result of, of all of the care and, and how is the healthcare system doing um, in terms of the solemn responsibilities that it has to deliver the kind of best care um, to, to each patient and communities. You know, rehospitalizations exact an enormous toll, both on individual patients and their caregivers, all the way to health systems and society at large. Um, we talk about mortality. Ultimately, what we'd like to do is to ensure that everything that the healthcare system is doing for our patients is actually helping them lead better and longer uh, lives. And, and so in many ways, that's a really key metric. What types of strategies can be implemented in hospitalized patients to predict risk for readmission and mortality? One key strategy is measurement of natriuretic peptide levels, which are helpful in determining prognosis. Here's Dr. Desai. It's important to note, and I think the guidelines have made reference to this as well, that getting uh, natriuretic peptide measurements um, in patients can be very, very helpful in terms of assessing uh, disease course, trajectory, risk stratification, and really getting a sense for where these, where these patients are in terms of their overall uh, course. In one study, a 23% reduction from admission to discharge in NT-PRO-BNP level was associated with an 89% lower risk of 30-day heart failure rehospitalization. In this sense, not only can natriuretic peptide levels serve as a prognostic tool, they can also serve as a management target to improve the 30-day readmission outcome. These are great insights, Ava. Are there other reimbursement models that are relevant to delivering outcome-oriented heart failure care? Yes. Another example is the Merit-Based Incentive Payment System Program, or the MIPS program, which focuses on the following four domains of care. Quality of care, cost of care, improvement activities, and the promotion of interoperability. There are four domains, um, and one of the domains is around quality of care. So, for instance, um, the use of beta blockers and uh, ACE inhibitors for patients with reduced EF heart failure are part of the quality metrics that are now part of the uh, MIPS program. Echoing what Dr. Desai said, the MIPS program considers the percentage of patients who are prescribed a beta blocker and or RAS inhibitor either at hospital discharge or in an outpatient setting. This makes sense because management of heart failure with guideline-directed medical therapy has been shown to reduce morbidity and mortality outcomes in patients with HEFREF. 
For example, in hospitalized patients with HFREF, initiation of any guideline-directed medical therapy before hospital discharge was associated with a 59% reduction of the risk of death. Here is Dr. Desai with some additional thoughts on the optimization of guideline-directed medical therapy. The dividends that, that we reap um, from the investment that is made with uh, ensuring that patients are on guideline-directed medical therapy are, are enormous. Um, you know, they have better symptoms, better quality of life, um, better outcomes, less rehospitalizations, and and I think it really is what high-quality, high-value care for heart failure uh, requires. So that was the MIPS program. And the final care model I want to discuss is the Accountable Care Organizations, or ACOs. Here's Dr. Desai's explanation of the program. This is an, kind of a novel provider arrangement where different providers or large um, systems or, or integrated delivery networks um, bear full financial risk for a certain population of patients. What the ACO model really incentivizes is to really deliver high-quality, efficient, coordinated care such that you reduce overall resource utilization. So there are several reimbursement models that are applicable to heart failure. Yes, there are, and they share the overarching goal of improving health outcomes by delivering quality care in the most cost-efficient manner. Great. So we discussed measurement of natriuretic peptides and optimization of guideline-directed medical therapies. What other ways are value-based measures implemented in practice? Another integral factor to achieving the care goals we mentioned is having a multidisciplinary team within the healthcare system. A team-based approach is associated with lower risk of 30-day readmission or mortality in patients with heart failure. Here's Dr. Desai describing recent trends in multidisciplinary care. People are, are developing um, standardized care pathways and, and algorithms to try and manage these patients. Um, to really develop a much more holistic uh, care team model with advanced practice providers and physicians, nurses, pharmacists, to really think about how to deliver best care um, for patients and, and really drive the use of, for example, guideline-directed medical therapy um, for, for, for patients. Well, besides coming together and collaborating on the optimization of guideline-directed medical therapy, how else does a multidisciplinary team benefit patients? Each type of provider in the multidisciplinary team plays an important role in monitoring and managing heart failure. They also educate patients and caregivers on disease progression and treatment regimens. As Dr. Desai explains, a multidisciplinary approach can benefit patients in a variety of ways. I think they're looking for providers to sit down with them. To, to educate them, to um, you know, walk through different options with them, and then elicit their values and preferences as they collaboratively make a treatment plan um, that's going to, um, of course, give them the best outcomes that they desire, but also is aligned with their own values and preferences. A recent study highlighted the value of patient engagement and empowerment. 
enrollment of patients in a multidisciplinary disease management program that provided education on self-management strategies was associated with a three-fold reduction of 30-day heart failure readmission. That's an impressive reduction. Is there a critical point during hospitalization when patient education should take place? Patient education should be provided throughout hospitalization, but it's especially important during transitions of care, such as at discharge, because as Dr. Desai points out, That moment from you know, hospital discharge and, and going either to home or to another care facility is really a point of vulnerability. And, and too many patients at too many systems too often you know, can fall through the crack you know, in, in that sort of vulnerable transition period. Therefore, successful transitions, including efforts to reconcile hospital medications with home medications and schedule a post-discharge follow-up visit, have been shown to reduce 30-day readmission rates. Dr. Desai details an outpatient disease management program at his institution that aims to assist patients during this transitional period. I'll give you an example of something that our own health system is doing. Um, really kind of investing very heavily in a disease management program for heart failure, where we use um, physicians, other care providers, pharmacists, um, to really do very close management of patients. And I think there's a number of things that happen in the disease management model that are crucial. Um, you know, everything from patient education, patient engagement, um, you know, medication reconciliation, really making sure that Patients have a good understanding of the therapy that therapies that they are on, um, that there aren't any drug-drug interactions or any safety considerations, uh, all the way to actually intensifying um, guideline-directed medical therapy, um, considering other add-on technologies or other therapies that might benefit a patient, all the way, I think, to thinking very deeply about um, when and if it comes to that point, to think about you know, goals of care discussions and, you know, really giving patients a real sense of um, what their disease course is going to be, what the next, um, you know, weeks, months, and years will, will look like for them, and really empower them with information so that they can really advocate and participate in their care in a very, very different way. That sounds like a transformative approach, and it brings us to the conclusion of our discussion of the relationship between value-based care and heart failure management. Ava, can you provide some key takeaways? We've learned that heart failure hospitalization not only significantly impacts the healthcare system as a whole, but also the key stakeholders in the system, including patients, providers, and payers. To improve outcomes, providers are implementing various outcome-oriented management strategies to adapt to the shift from volume-based to value-based care. Here's Dr. Desai with his key takeaways for us. Fundamentally, what, it, what is required here um, is for us to really reimagine what heart failure care um, looks like. We have a tremendous body of evidence that suggests what that care should look like and what the key elements of that care are. But I think there's a lot of work to do and a lot of innovation that has to come on the delivery side to really build a 21st century healthcare system you know, that, that's prepared um, to deliver best heart failure care to all of our patients. Thank you for listening to CV Deep Dive. I'm Dennis Steele. And I'm Ava Parker. And we hope you'll join us again.
This podcast was sponsored by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation, and the speakers were compensated for their time. The statements in this podcast reflect the medical expertise and opinions of the presenters. Thank you.